here. We knew it'd be a skinny weekend with Sunday following Christmas Day on a Saturday. Glad you're here. Hey, to Mark's thanks for those who helped with the Christmas Eve service, which was lovely. Friday night, I had the tech group as well. And just say there's always a host of people, usually on a given Sunday, especially with Sunday schools in force. There's about 30 volunteers per Sunday that it takes for us, the rest of us, to walk in and enjoy our time together. So I not only thank those folks, but also say if you're not involved, if you're not serving in the church, there's plenty of place for you. And I know the kids' Sunday school class would be one of those. So as you look at 2022 and, and investigate how you might serve in Lion and Lamb, you can sure talk to Jamie Runyon about Children's Sunday School. It's a, a delightful place to serve and to work for sure. Also wanted to say uh, Steve's, Steve's uh, example of trying to be a neighbor in their neighborhood is something that we were really glad when we were given this property that we would have a neighborhood that we could be neighbors to others. And one of the ways we've tried to intentionally be about that is by having a, a free coffee, tea, and Wi-Fi time. We've done that three times a week. We've done it for months. We've had some fun stories along the way, but as volunteers have reduced and as the really the response from the neighborhood has been pretty limited, uh, we're going to close the door on that open house at least for now. So just FYI, if you drive by, you won't see the big banner out front that says, uh, come on in, we're serving now. With that, let me pray again, and we'll get into the message. Lord, thanks that you are. Apart from you, there is nothing. Lord Jesus, you spoke the cosmos into being. We derive our personhood, our very existence, our life and our breath from you and your good pleasure. Indeed, Scripture says you hold the universe together. We are so thankful be in relationship with you and we do ask that your spirit would encourage embolden enable us this morning not only to declare your praises rightly out of full hearts uh, as we praise in song later but also this morning as we look in your word together we want to be worshipful to hear what you'd have to say to each one of us and lord no more and no less uh, help us to hear from you in jesus name amen this is by way of introduction, so this is not the Bible. Bilbo Baggins was a benign, middle-aged, comfortably cushioned hobbit, used to regular meals and lots of them. He loved smoking his pipe after those meals and took childish delight in sending smoke rings upward, one after another. His was a very comfortable life, and he intended to keep it that way until... Well, until Gandalf showed up at his gate and invited him on an adventure. Bilbo's response to the invitation was predictable. No, thank you. He said, we are plain, quiet folk. We have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. The next evening, Bilbo found himself entertaining 13 dwarves along with Gandalf he also found himself strangely drawn in by the stories of treasure to be rescued from an evil dragon inside a lonely mountain far away. In the excitement of the moment, he suggested that he was up for an adventure in rescuing that dragon gold. But when he woke up the next morning and the dwarves were gone and the kitchen was a mess and needed to be cleaned, the thought of adventure was entirely and happily forgotten. He washed up, had breakfast, and was about to have a second breakfast when Gandalf showed up 
asking him what he was doing sitting at home while the dwarves were all waiting for him at an inn down the road to begin their great adventure. And so it was that comfort-loving, status-quo-affirming Bilbo ran down the path from his home, a path that joined a larger road and then another, until without even a handkerchief he began an adventure that changed the course of his life and put him in a much, much bigger story Indeed, that, of course, is Mike's excerpt and suggestion of the book, The Hobbit, by J.R.R. Tolkien. So it's the last Sunday of 2021. We're close to the new year. Hopefully, one of the things that we intentionally do is sort of look back, do a little retrospective. What was in this year? What was significant in it? What did I learn? What was, what was good? What would I want to reproduce? And Looking forward to the new year, what does that look like? What's expected of me? What does God have for me? And my suggestion or my hope this morning is simply to say that unlike Bilbo, at least initially, we consciously embrace, willingly embrace, the adventure that is following Christ. Bilbo's invited to go follow with these dwarves on this great adventure, but the truth is, everybody's invited on an adventure and life is an adventure and you know adventures have ups and downs it's not that we say yes to an adventure in fact you know in one place in the hobbit which was written you know as a children's book it's a bedtime story for his kids by tolkien initially Um, and he says in part of it he said now you may think this is no big deal for bilbo but you're reading this comfortably and safe at home and you're not with him in the moment you know when you get on an adventure, you're in the moment. You know, you're the one in the story. And so we don't know what an adventure is going to look like for us. It's not merely this positive thing where adventure means everything's going to be great, like a vacation. We don't know what challenges it will present us at all. So looking at next year, doing so with the mindset, being intentional about saying yes to whatever adventure Christ calls us to follow him on. The adventure of following Jesus has less to do with our geography, where we are, than our attitude. Are we the person Jesus is calling us to be, in the place he's calling us to be, doing the things he's calling us to do? That's really the question. The the adventure is being where Christ calls us to be. It's not someone else's adventure, it's our own. In the gospel accounts, Jesus called men and women to follow him, Following him involved two things. We'll see both of these this morning, two primary things. The first is, and this is sort of an exception in the gospel account, especially the synoptics, the first is following Jesus into life eternal. We'll see that in the first text we look at. Follow me, Jesus says, and get life, get eternal life. The the predominant theme in that phrase, follow me, especially in the synoptics, is following him in discipleship, which he characterizes as dying. You remember Bonhoeffer's famous, one of his famous quotes is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's because the cost of being a disciple means saying goodbye to who I was and what I was and my desires as simply my desires and saying yes to whatever it is Jesus is putting in front of me or on my plate. That's a very different way of living life characterized as the epitome of death. The phrase, follow me, at least in the ESV, is used 21 times in the New Testament. 20 of those are by Jesus. So that's significant. 
Four of those, Jesus is referring to someone being called into eternal life. They're not saved. They still, their life is still in darkness, lost, not in relationship with the living God. He calls them into life. The 16 others are related to discipleship. Three of the four uses of follow me are the same account. So it's the same story about the rich young ruler in all three synoptic gospels. We're going to read in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22 to get started. I'll read in the ESV. If you use a pew Bible, that's page 824. And then I'd also tell you, especially if you have a study Bible, it will show you these in the references. The same account is recorded in Mark 10 and also in Luke 18. And I'll mention that because we'll, we're going to read from Matthew, but we'll add some of the details that come in from those other Gospels as well. And as we read this, I, I hope that you feel, I think, two of the appropriate emotional responses to the story is one is affection and love for this guy because Jesus had love for this guy, one of the texts tells us, and also sadness at realizing what he's saying no to in the invitation to follow Christ, what he's saying no to is a big deal. So Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22 Behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? So that's his question. I want eternal life, and I don't have it. He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So get rid of what you've got, come follow me to eternal life. Now, consider who this guy is and what he's like. Sort of the frame of reference from which this question is coming. He's serious. He's asking a serious question about the most serious thing in the world. I I want eternal life. How do I get it? He's sincere. You know, when Jesus says, you know, keep the law, he's like, that's that's what I'm about. I'm about keeping the law. Here, I'm serious about this. He's concerned for his soul. You know, I wasn't smart enough as a young man to be concerned for my soul. I was busy having a good time, sort of according to the ways I thought a good time was to be had. Nothing like this. He's concerned. He knows he's doing sort of on the right track, sort of, but he knows he doesn't have what he desperately needs. He's socially important. Luke's gospel tells us he's a ruler generally assume that's probably in a local synagogue, which is highly unusual for a young guy in Judaism to be a ruler in a local synagogue. He's wealthy. We're told he had great possessions, and he's desperate. You you get this out of Mark's gospel, which I love. Mark's gospel tells us he ran up to Jesus, and he knelt before him. It's like, there's the teacher. I'm not going to miss him. He runs up, and he kneels before him in a sign of respect. You're the guy I need to interact with on this key thing in my life. So he appears to, on one hand, have everything most people aspire to. So he's got status, wealth, he's got youth, he's living a morally upright life, and yet he knows something is still 
missing. And I love that. He's honest about this too, right? I'm doing the things I know to do, but I know I'm still missing something significant. His question to Jesus is point blank. What do I do in order to have eternal life? What do I do? So if someone asked you the same question, what would you say? Now, we just read the text. Would you say what Jesus said? Probably most of us wouldn't. You know, there was a jailer in the city of Philippi, Acts 16. He asked basically the same question, doesn't he? You know, uh, Paul's in prison, and God sends an earthquake, and prison doors open up, and the jailer assumes, these guys, my prisoners are gone. And under that Roman law, he knew he, he would suffer loss of his own life if his prisoners escaped. So he's ready to kill himself when Paul says, hey, don't do that. And this guy is shaken to his core, isn't he? And so he just says to Paul, just like this young man, point blank, what must I do to be saved? And so to a a point blank question, Paul gives a point blank answer. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. In fact, he says, and your whole household, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And that's not what Jesus says at all in this account, is it? Very, very different response to this young man. He has a different... uh, Jesus does not have a different means of salvation, but because he's speaking to the real issues in this man's life, he responds in a way that Paul did not. So why didn't Jesus say the same thing to this young man that Paul said to the jailer? His first response is helpful. He first says, before he even gets to the question, he says, why do you call me good? Only one is good. This demands a response from the young man, doesn't it? Uh, If Jesus is good, then Jesus is implying that I'm God because there's only one good. God is good. If I'm not good, then I may not be the best source for you to ask this question of. But if I am, you need to recognize that what I say is the truth. And if you want eternal life, and I'm God, and I'm good, then what I say is your path to eternal life. What I say is the answer to your question. So the man's question, what good must I do to have eternal life? Jesus' response, keep the commands of the law. Keep the law. This isn't what we'd be saying today, is it? The man says, appropriately, which ones? There's over 1,600 commands in the Jewish law. So he says, wow, okay, but which ones? Jesus references five of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't actually put them in order. Uh, So honor your parents, he puts uh, last or almost last, and then uh, murder adultery, slander. And then he throws in Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor. So the man says, great, I've done those. And he says in Mark uh, 10, 20, it adds, from my youth, I've done those. Jesus says, Do, keep the commands and live. Okay, which ones? Here they are. Great, I've done those, but I still know I've got a problem. Jesus says, verse 21, to his question, what do I still lack? So I'm doing those things that you just said, and I know I don't have eternal life. So what do I still lack? Jesus responds, sell what you possess, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Is Jesus saying you can't own anything if you want to go to heaven? Is he implying that to have wealth in this world means necessarily forfeiting eternal life? What's the connection between the man's wealth and...
connection or not having eternal life? What's the connection? Why is Jesus responding to him this way? Now, your study sheet has these references, and I want to be absolutely and abundantly clear on this. What Jesus is giving this guy is law, not gospel. He's responding to the man according to the man's question and mindset, which we'll talk about here in just a second. What he's saying, keep the law to gain eternal life, is not the gospel, and no one does it, and no one can. Scripture is clear on this. So the references on your sheet from Genesis 15, 6 forward are the gospel. So Paul's response to the jailer, that's the gospel, believe in Jesus and be saved. All from Genesis 15, 6, you know, Abraham's the father of faith, and the text is clear. In fact, the New Testament authors go back to Genesis 15, 6. So God speaks to Abraham. The text says Abraham believed God, and God credited it to Abraham as righteousness. He's just in God's eyes because he has faith in God. That's the deal. So this is not a trick question. If someone asks you how to gain eternal life, we don't quote Jesus here unless we know what Jesus is doing, and that's what this person needs to hear. We quote the other authors where the answer is very, very clear. We want to be clear for ourselves. You know, if someone says, uh, do you have eternal life? And you can't say with absolute clarity, yes, then you probably don't understand the gospel. Jesus, John 10, Jesus gives eternal life. If you follow Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't know, if you're not sure you have eternal life, then you haven't trusted Christ in some significant, meaningful way according to the gospel. So we want to be clear on what the gospel is. The gospel is not keeping the commandments. You know, you read in Galatians and you see there, you know, why the, why the law? Well, the law points out our sin. You know, Romans 7, why the law? The law shows me what a sinner I am. When it says don't do that, I say, well, that's exactly what I do. So Jesus is, is answering this guy according to the mindset he's bringing. And we'll talk about this, but we want to be clear on what the gospel is what the gospel is not. Why does Jesus interact with our rich young friend the way he does? This man assumes he can do something by which he can gain life. We know that's an impossibility. Jesus' response to keep the law challenges the man to inspect his heart and life and see that he could never live a truly, fully righteous life. No one, no one can do that. To the commands to honor parents and do right by others, at least generally, and no one keeps any of these perfectly, by the way, at least generally the man can say, that's the way I've tried to live my life. Those commands Jesus articulated that he listed, the guy says, I'm with you, I'm there, that's the way I live. And friends, this is the thing too. When you talk to others in the world about the gospel and about Christ and eternal life and forgiveness of sins, and really the question, which is the, for me, it is the, the most clarifying question you can ask someone, is if you died today, would you go to heaven or hell and why? If you died today, would you go to heaven or hell and why? Most people will say something like this rich young man says. And if you haven't done this, you, can, you could tell people, I'm conducting an experiment and I'm just tallying up the responses. And to this question, what do you say? And the, the most common, by far, far and away, the most common response is, I hope I'd go to heaven. And why would God let you in? And the response is, because I've tried to live a good life, and I've tried to be a good person. That's this guy. 
Now, this guy knows he doesn't have eternal life because that's why he's talking to Jesus. I want it. I don't have it. And I'm doing the things I know to do, but I still realize I'm lacking. That's where most people are. And when, the, when you get that kind of response, you can always go to the Scripture. And my follow-up is, could you show me that in the Bible? Because they can't. And then I say, would you read some verses and tell me what you think they mean? And then we, sh- we go through the Gospel. Notice, and, and this is the thing, you know one of the things you've got to love about Jesus' interaction in the Gospels is his way of getting to the issue. You know, what's the real issue for someone? He's a master, obviously at doing this and that's what he's doing to this guy so did you notice the laws he didn't cite he cited the ones he knew the guy could say yeah i've done those if not perfectly i've lived according to my life that way far as i can he didn't cite the first of the ten commandments have no other idols he didn't cite the greatest commandment deuteronomy 6 love the lord your god with all you are and all you have He didn't cite the 10th commandment, don't covet. I wonder why he didn't cite those. Jesus' command to sell his wealth was an invitation to rid himself of his false god, the idol of material wealth, which would free him to fully trust in Christ and to follow Jesus into life eternal. This guy couldn't have said yes to those. And if he had, he'd been lying. Because an idol had displaced God and that's why Jesus wants him to know if you call me good recognize who I am and who it is saying to you who it is responding to you and calling you to life so Jesus call to him was to life it wasn't through the law it was through Christ Jesus knew this guy's wealth is his God and that's what's holding him back and that's why he pursues the conversation the way he does Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 16 26 What will it profit a man if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? And remember, this guy, he is trading his soul for his material possessions on earth that he'll lose when he dies with no eternal life to follow it. His soul is being purchased very cheaply indeed, and it wouldn't matter how much wealth you had in the short duration of life we're given on the earth. If we think trading eternity of joy and pleasure forever in God's presence under Christ's reign, if we think trading that for some temporary pleasure, wealth, whatever, we're fools indeed. But that's the trade that's being made, and that's the trade this young man was making as well. This is a great reminder that you can have everything the world has to offer. You can be sincere. You can live a moral and admirable life. And by the way, many are and that aren't Christians. Many of the Muslims, many Hindus, many people with no profession of faith at all live more upright lives than many professing Christians do. And yet, they are cut off from the source of life. They do not have eternal life. That positive description can be true of lots of people that don't know Christ and are not saved. The invitation to follow Jesus was a call to leave behind the idols of the heart the God replacements to fully trust in Jesus as life itself and to follow him as the Lord of life. That was the invitation. I think someone quoted recently from John 6. I can't remember what service it was in. But you got to love it. You know, Jesus, uh, John 5, uh, Jesus gives happy meals to all the people following him. You know, he's got this large entourage of people that are following him. They don't believe in him. 
And so what he does is he intentionally stumbles them. And you know, he tells the Jews, you've got to practice a form of cannibalism. You've got to eat my flesh. You've got to drink my blood. Why does he say that? He's getting rid of the people that don't actually believe in him. And you remember the disciples, it's like, Lord, this is kind of hard to understand. We're not too sure about this ourselves. So he says, do you want to leave? Do you want to leave too? And so Peter speaks for himself in the group when he says, where would we go? To whom would we go? You have words of eternal life. We, we know who you are. See, that's the thing. If you know who Christ is, then everything else is, is just the follow-up. Jesus has called me. He's life. Now I'm going to follow him. But if we don't get that, we lose eternal life. We don't see it that it's in him and him alone. This guy's goal was eternal life. His question, how do I get it? Jesus' answer in essence is, so strip away everything else. Jesus' answer is, follow me. You connect your life to mine. You follow me. You'll have eternal life. If you don't follow me, you won't have eternal life. That's still the same today. His wealth kept him from following Christ into life. Anything that keeps us from Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins and the reception of life that lasts forever in God's presence is an idol that cheats us of joy now and ultimately robs us of life. Is anything keeping us from fully trusting Jesus and accepting his invitation to life? In this account, when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, follow me to eternal life. Follow me to joy forever. Follow me to sins forgiven. Follow me to life. The call to follow Jesus doesn't end when we come to saving faith. In fact, it's just begun. The call to follow Jesus to life is followed by the call to follow him in the adventure of dying to who and what we were and what we wanted and thereby to live to him and his goodwill. If you have your Bibles, turn back in Matthew to Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry years. It says, As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now we know from John 1 that Andrew and Peter at least had already met Jesus, had already spent time with him. They'd already been introduced. They, they already believed that Jesus was Messiah. But here he says, Leave your fish nets and come catch men instead. And that's what they did. And you see something very similar in Matthew 9 9. He did the same thing with Matthew, the tax collector. He calls them away from his office, his place of career. When Jesus called these men, they followed. Jesus still calls some of us to leave careers in order to follow him. And indeed, Jesus' call to follow him extends to every relationship and sphere of life. I think even if we're serious about our relationship with Christ, even if we're serious about taking God at His word from Scripture, I think it's still very difficult to come to grips with the fullness of the nature of the call to follow Christ apart from the way we might choose to live life otherwise. Listen to this from Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Jesus said, Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth, 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You remember, for the Jews, we use crosses as decoration, but you know, it was an abhorrent symbol for the Jews. And in the day, because it was the, not only the symbol of persecution and torture, but of death. And of course, Jesus tells his disciples, that's where I'm going. By the way, I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem and I'll rise from the dead, etc. But Jesus, his call to follow him is this call to living by dying to ourselves. So the thought is, I've been, cru- you know, Paul says Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. So that, that image of crucifixion is who I was and what I was died. And when I trusted Christ and when I heard his call to follow him, my old life I'm dead to. I'm a new person with a new life, and that life is characterized by saying no to who and what I was and following hard after Christ. We can't afford to love anyone or anything more than Christ. We can't afford to have any greater loyalty or devotion than to the Lord. The call to follow Jesus, Savior, and God is truly, singularly exclusive. His call to follow Him eclipses every other call and relationship on earth. And again, I just think that we, we grasp little bits of this, but I think by and large we fail to, to count the cost of what does that really look like day by day for me. Jesus promises that if we save our life by living life on our own terms as we see fit, if that's the way as Christians that we're living, He says we're not saving it, we're losing it because we're trading the source of life, at least the experience in the relationship, the source of life, for something more minor. The best thing we can do as followers of Jesus Christ, looking forward to 2022, the best thing we can do as followers of Jesus Christ is to follow Jesus Christ. We can do that through prayer and should through prayer. Lord, what do you want? What do you want for me? You know, when I wake up in the morning, you know, Lord, what do you want from me? What do I need to see? What is following you look like today? I should be praying about it. I should get counsel from other godly believers who know God and love God, know his word and know me and love me. Major life decisions, choices, marriage, school, career, church. You think of all of those. What does it mean to follow Christ? I want to be sensitive about that. And also scripture as we're spending time with the Lord in his word, especially if we've got decisions to make or the question looms about, you know, Lord, what do you want from me? Uh, as we're reading in the Word, God will often speak to us, not because that text was written to tell us what to do in a certain time or place, but because simply that's the way God often works. We had friends years ago, serious, serious Christians. These guys were not uh, flimsy in their thinking, and they've been praying about buying a house north of where they lived, and they wanted to honor the Lord. This guy was full-time in ministry. He was supported strictly by what people gave him, and they were very careful about the way they lived and planned and spent and Madeline, his wife, was reading in Deuteronomy, and it said, uh, you've circled this mountain long enough, turn north and go, go on. And she shared that with her husband, and they assumed that was God telling them, buy that house that's north of you that you've been praying about. And we're careful with things like that. But what I'm suggesting is, 
when we're reading in Scripture, God can and often does give us direction on what following Christ in the moment looks like. We want to have our eyes open for that. Be aware, too, that like any good adventure, following Christ will include unexpected times and situations, changes of plans, side roads, and frankly, disappointments. Frankly, disappointments. Uh, for several years, when my family was a lot younger and I was too, I pursued what I thought was God's call in my life. I wanted to be a tent maker missionary in Eastern Europe. And many of you are not old enough to remember this, but this is when communism was still the thing, and you couldn't freely go in as a Christian into Eastern Europe, and you certainly couldn't freely talk about the gospel, share the gospel, start churches. You couldn't do that freely, but you could as a missionary, as a tent maker. The longer I looked at that and the longer I pursued it, I came to the conclusion God was not calling me to that. Uh, that was my hope. That was my dream. and That wasn't going to happen. The thing about the adventure of following Christ is that He's the one leading, and it's our part to do the following. Sometimes we find our desires align with following Christ and what He's ordained, and sometimes it is very, very otherwise. When you read John 21... Uh, Jesus is with uh, Peter and John on the shore, and Jesus tells Peter, he said, when you get older, you're going to go where you don't want to go. Men are going to take you where you don't want to go. And Peter knows he's inferring he's going to die a martyr's death. This is not what Peter's thinking about as a glorious future. And John's with him, and so Peter says to Jesus, well, what about this guy? What's his happy future? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's what Peter does. So Peter follows Jesus in his living, and he follows Peter in his dying. You know, tradition says Peter was crucified, not only crucified, but crucified upside down, not feeling himself worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. For some of us, Following Jesus will mean living life unmarried. It's a big deal, isn't it? Whether I'm married or not, whether I'm single all my life or married. Can we do that? Is following Christ in this life unmarried? Is that enough? Is that okay if that's what God's call on my life is? Can I say yes to that? Can I follow Christ as a single all my life? For others, following Jesus means living life with a spouse and probably raising children. Can we do that? Some who are unmarried lament their state, seeing a life in marriage as more desirable, while some who are married look at their married life and lament the more carefree days of being single. God appoints each of us to places and spheres of life and living that represent His best for us as well as for His greater purposes in our time and place. Guys, this is one of the things too. When we're looking at our life, we're looking, we're like in a glass, and, and you know, if you've got a little uh, lizard in a terrarium, you know, his world is, it ends, you know, at that glass. He can see some things out there, but he can pretty much only see what's right in front of him, and that's us too. So oftentimes we'll have desires, and we might pray, Lord, this is what I want. I hope this is what you're given, or Lord, please give me that. Please do this. But our prayers as, following, as far as following God's will, they're limited because our sight is just so limited and it's on what we know. But like Bilbo, we're part of a much, much bigger story than my life. We're part of stories and adventures we have no knowledge of, but God does. And that's why it's important that He's setting our course 
we're not. So as we're looking at options or praying about one thing or another, we want to remember God sees the things I can't see. So I want to be receptive to God. When you say come, that's what I want to do. It's not just about my desires. Whatever kind of a life Jesus calls us to, lamenting what we aren't given serves no good purpose. Mark prayed about envy earlier. Uh, Envying what God has given others and not me does no good. It's to no good purpose. We aren't called to follow Jesus the way someone else is, but only as he's called us. I'm reading a biography on William Wilberforce now and enjoying it a lot. You know, Wilberforce was physically a very small man. He was very sick all of his life, went blind in one eye before he died. So life was a challenge just on its own. He was also a member of parliament for decades, and just the process of the political machine in his day was very difficult, took a great toll on him as well. He was vilified. His life was threatened. He was called an opportunist and a hypocrite, all while trying to glorify Christ as a politician. His labors were not what he would have chosen, and on more than one occasion, he's seriously contemplating getting out of the life of politics. He wanted to go be a preacher or a pastor. Uh, William Pitt, one of his friends, the prime minister, dissuaded him on one occasion, and his friend and mentor John Newton did the same thing on another occasion. This is in part what John Newton wrote to William Wilberforce. Uh, By the way, it was Wilberforce that was really carrying the flag to get rid of slavery under British rule. There was some minor success early where they limited the number of slaves that could be taken on any ship based on its size. That limited the number of deaths on the crossing of the Atlantic, which was a good thing. But it was decades later before slavery was abolished in the British realm. And that was, Wilberforce was the guy carrying that flag. So he wants to get out. He wants to do something else. And this is what Newton wrote in part. He said, you meet many things which weary and disgust you, but then they are inseparably connected with your path of duty. This is the thing. Newton says, you're right where God wants you. And this stuff you're getting, that just comes with the territory. That's part of following Christ for you. He said, though you cannot do all the good you wish for, some good is done. You are not only a representative for Yorkshire, You have the far greater honor of being a representative for the Lord in a place where many know him not and an opportunity of showing them what are the genuine fruits of that religion which you are known to profess. So, William, you may not be able to do all the good you'd like, but you are doing good. It was almost the end of his life before slavery was abolished. It was decades. It was decades. It was a long, long road. I'd say this too, if you're young, don't assume you have time to waste time for your own pleasures that you can say, I don't need to worry about this stuff now, I've got years ahead. Listen to what Wilberforce wrote of his own wasted youth. You know, he he was wealthy pretty much from birth forward. He could pretty much live life on his own terms. Money wasn't an issue. He could go where he wanted to go, he could do what he wanted to do. He loved to entertain people, he did a ton of it. But this is what he said when he looked back. He called it his own great awakening. When he looked back on those years of youth, he said, I deeply lamented my idleness at college. For the next seven or eight years, I deemed it to be my duty to redeem the time and prosecute the studies I ought to have cultivated in my earlier years. 
I made it my object, therefore, to improve my faculties and add to my slender stock of knowledge. It's like I look back and I realize when I could have been about God's business, I could have been well prepared. I'm not because I wasn't following Christ in the day. And so I spent years trying to make up for the wasted time that I had through my college days. Life is, life is an adventure. And like Bilbo, we're tempted to cling to our comforts and to say no to the adventure that is following Christ. Like Bilbo, we're all involved in a story much, much bigger than our own doing. The story we're part of started long ago in eternity past. It reaches forward into eternity future, and only God is adequate to order our ways and our days in paths of righteousness. We can't do that. How is Jesus calling me to follow him? What does that look like? What does it require? I want to tally up the costs. I want to go in with eyes wide open as much as I can, though I cannot see everything that will come. Have I followed Christ's call to eternal life? Nothing else matters to that. Moral people will be in hell forever. Good people, as the world counts good people, will be in hell forever. We follow Christ into life. Then we follow him in life-denying, life-affirming discipleship we got to get that order correct. One does not lead to the other. What adventures will Jesus call us to in 2022? And are we poised? And this is really the question. Are we poised mentally, emotionally, thoughtfully? Are we poised to say yes to whatever that call to adventure is in following Christ in the coming year? Are we leaning into that? God help us to do so. If you would, rise and we'll close by reading John 12, 24 through 26. Close the message time anyway. Let's read together. This is the same thought from John's Gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him.